You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Hello, and welcome to the Sport Horse Podcast. I'm Nicole Lakin. And I'm Tim Borden, and we have uh, a good friend of mine on the podcast today. So we've got Sean Jobin, who I've known for a, bun- a number of years now, and uh, we do some work together. He's a Canadian show jumping rider. Uh, he's up to the five-star level now, and we do some work with you know building the training programs for his horses, getting the horses and stuff. So it's you know it should be a good discussion on you know where the current state of the sport is when you actually go and try to apply some of the technology and you try to apply some of the science that uh, we talk about so frequently on the podcast. So it's it's good to bring in the a rider's perspective on this. Uh, Sean will sit, share his thoughts on. You know, some of the different tools he's using in practice right now, as well as like, how does he actually analyze a, uh, a competition result? Like, how does he make training decisions to influence what the horses are doing in the ring? So it's, uh, no, I hope you all take this information and start to think a little bit more about what can we actually do in our own training programs to apply some of this? Because uh, I'm, of course, biased because I co-host this podcast, but I really do think that this is the future of sport. Uh, every other sport has gone through this sort of uh, rebirth in a way where more and more science is coming in and it's never going to replace good coaching and a good foundation. Like the art of coaching is always what's going to be, what's going to stand on top of the pyramid, but what other tools and analytics and strategies can we bring in? And a lot of those are influenced by science. So uh, it's a discussion on that, where we're going in the sport and, yeah, I hope you enjoy it. So Sean is a Canadian FEI jumping rider. He's based at a Foxers Farms in Florida and Ohio. Uh, he's currently uh, top 10 in Canada, and he's around 250th in the world at this moment. Uh, he won the 2019 Baker Award at the Royal Winter Fair, and he's currently competes for the team uh, for the Show Plus Northern Lights team as part of the Major League Show Jumping Circuit. He's also the owner and head trainer of Double Clear LLC and takes on clients and horses from around the world for training and sales purposes. Sean believes that integrating technology with traditional training practices gives him a competitive advantage. He examines heart rates, different kinematic metrics, high-speed video, and a bunch of and uses a bunch of different tools to better assess each performance and to identify areas for growth. Hey Sean, it's good to have you on the Sport Horse Podcast finally. Oh, it's great to finally be here. Thank you, Tim. So uh, we'll just dive right in. Um, you know, I'm pretty familiar with your program, of course, but can you just speak a little bit about the technology that you're currently using and sort of how do you take that information and leverage it into some of the decisions you're making day in and day out with your horses? Yeah, uh, I'd be happy to. So the technology we're kind of using that's uh, a little bit different from the rest of the uh, show jumping teams right now is um, it's a monitoring device uh, called a Move Pro, um, and it basically tracks a lot of the biomechanics um, uh, from the uh, from the horses jumping, from the canter, from uh, its turns and movements. And um, what does it just fits on the girth and uh, we turn it on before the horse begins its warm up. We uh, sync it up to the computer or the phone or whatever. Then we download the data and um, 
so afterwards, it gives us a chance when we're kind of debriefing and uh, looking at the horse and uh, the competition. We can compare the data from the biomechanics to what we see in the ring and the showing. Um, so maybe going a little bit deeper into that, what we mostly focus on is things like stride elevation, uh, immediately proceeding, um, the fences, uh, the strike power of the uh of uh, each step, so how many G-forces are kind of uh, exerting before and after each fence, uh, jump angles, certain um, uh, heights and widths that they're making, um, and then we're just going through that and uh, tracking any trends we can with each of the horses, whether maybe typically jumping more shallow, their, their step is leveling out or flattening a little bit too much earlier or late in the course. Um, so there's, yeah, there's a lot that kind of goes into that right now. Um, we've mostly used that. We kind of started with, uh, biometrics like respiration, heart rate, uh, with some other, uh, equipment, but, um, having done that now we're kind of moving on to, uh, biomechanics. Yeah. Yeah. And like you mentioned, like going through the data afterwards and sort of a de debrief process um and that, i think that's really one of the low-hanging fruits in the sport that not enough people truly dive into enough right like to actually take the time to go back and analyze um because i think like that's really one of the things that separates the top top riders from everyone else uh, and i was watching something on the nfl draft a couple weeks ago and it was from a, a former player scout and he was talking about like that's the thing he loves to do with perspective players that they're, that they're looking at drafting is you actually bring them into the room and you put them in front of a, a whiteboard and you have them go through like all the plays from their college days. And you're looking for like who, who really remembers like, a, you know, a specific play from a specific game. Cause you know that those are the people who have actually gone in and have really studied what they did in the past and have learned from it and they are improving on it. And I think that's one of the cool things about you is that like, you know, we can talk about a round from a year ago and you still know exactly what the fence looks like that you had down or like exactly the cause or whatever. And like, like how much time do you think you're putting into each round afterwards? Uh, yeah, I mean, pretty quickly, like <laughs> I, I get pretty um, uh, antsy if, if the uh, videos aren't up really quickly. Cause I think that's what we'll go to first, right. Is the video uh replay like well everything's really fresh in in my mind um that's the best thing too because i kind of find adding that extra perspective outside of yourself uh seeing it from the perspective of wherever the camera is really really helps see you know or get a bigger picture of uh of exactly what happened um the other really nice thing about that too is it kind of takes i find it helps take a little bit of that pressure away from competing because when you're actually in that debrief process, like you said, where you're analyzing the round after the fact, in both situations, there's a lot to learn, right? And it gives you a chance like, okay, we went in, we had three rails down with um, with an eight-year-old horse in one of his first meter 45 classes or something. That's still, it's still something a little bit to look forward to because you're like, okay, like after this, we're going to go in, we're looking, hopefully we're going to identify some of the things that happened a lot of it comes up in the video, but some of it comes up also in just analyzing, you know, a little bit of data over time, you know, right. And realizing, Hey, it's like front rail ox or with the back end, like 90% of the time, this is something we really got to hammer at home. Um, but um, yeah, I just think, like I said, it's, uh, it, it really, really helps just kind of take away some of the emotional aspects of, of competing 
afterwards and and um it helps me kind of keep going because i think a lot of times too, if you have a bad round or something you can be pretty demoralizing and it's hard to go back and train everything uh, if you, especially if you don't really have a good idea of what happened or, or what you can improve on right and so i think this way it kind of keeps you coming back to the actual training uh training program and thinking okay like i have this information now and it's not pointless. It's, it's something we can at least do to keep moving forward. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I actually want to push back on something that Tim said. Uh, I don't necessarily think that there, that people aren't going and looking back at what's happened, but I think that what the technology is empowering you to do, what you're, you're talking about is give some context to what you're seeing when you look back. Um, could you maybe talk a little bit more about that? And I think it's hard sometimes when you go back and you look at a, a video and you're replaying that, you know, the one jump you had down over and over again, um, it, it can be hard to focus on the right things. Can you talk a little bit about how quantifying um, some of the the measurements that, and metrics that you talked about can help you pinpoint the things that are that are fixable that you can work on for the next round or the next, you know, five rounds if it's a young horse, that kind of thing? Yeah. So, yeah, I think you're right in that. I don't know anybody who's like seriously competing who doesn't go back and like look at the rounds. Um, but I think you'd be surprised probably by the amount of people who uh, maybe aren't analytical about it is probably the best way I could say it, right? Like a lot of people will go back and look at maybe the really good rounds and just rewatch that over a million times, right? Or in a worst case scenario, just rewatching like a really bad round over and over again, right? So I think a big part of this is trying to just even out the weight of everything, right? Like realistically, one really good round is worth as much as one just very mediocre round that gets washed out through the rest of the season. Um, but, I mean, you could even take a look at, like, video, like, analyzing on video, right? At the end of the day, that's only one kind of lens to look at a round, right? It's also completely different from watching that entire round in slow motion, right? And you'll get a completely different picture of your round by looking at it from that perspective, right? And it's the same thing when you look at your round just from Excel spreadsheet or just from box score, right? Um, which we track off everything, right? Like the clear rounds or wherever we had rails and everything. And then you're going to go, and again, if you really break it down even further, or I guess get even more focused on it, then you get into the biomechanical stuff where you're looking at, okay, what was the actual strike angle? How much time did we spend in the air? You know, how much force was exerted uh, there, right? So uh, I guess, you know, the big thing there would be, it's not necessarily trying to trying to zero in on too much on one particular angle and being like, okay, you know, the slow motion video is like everything here. We have to really over analyze this point or that point. It's more just collecting enough data um, throughout the course of a year and getting a really big sample size, which is, which is tough with horse sport, right. Um, to actually look up and see, okay, there are some trends that are evolving at these different levels of analysis. Um, does that make sense? I feel like I maybe overcomplicated that more than I needed to. No, I, I think it yeah. does make sense. It's another tool in the toolbox ultimately, and they all have value. Yeah. And I think like, again, it's, it's a little bit tough to, um, and this, and I think this is why we're really well with Tim too, right? Because I think as well, it's hard to, to uh, it's hard to analyze your own competitive, uh, 
success or, or, um, your own, the own, your own job, you kind of posted in the actual competition ring, right? Cause it's, uh, get really emotional right afterwards too right and you kind of think like well you know especially i find that in jump offs a lot you know i think it's easy to be like okay um you came around the corner and you you didn't leave the stride out like you wanted to the last line or you didn't uh, make a turn quite quick enough or something right and then it's easy to just kind of be stuck in your own world and freak out about that on your own right and be like oh i should have done this i'm so dumb or or you know, beat yourself up at it. But I think if you go back and you look at a lot of those rounds, it's not one particular, you know, big moment of decision that, mm-hmm. that a rider really messed up. And that's why um, I think that's why it's so key. It's, it's usually a culmination of smaller factors that kind of bring into it. And I think like the emotional side of our brains kind of wants to focus on the one big turning point. A lot of times, rather than the little kind of uh, ticks moments here, there, and everywhere that could have um, made or break or make or break the uh, the actual class itself, right? Yeah, it, it makes me think of. Um, I think it was the jump off uh, in Geneva this year. It was uh, McLean and I think Julian Fayard. And uh, um, I mean, if you watch the the overlay of the two horses jumping off. Um, yeah. They keep, you know, one takes over and then the other takes over and then one takes over and the other takes over. So there wasn't, you know, one one particular point in the jump off that was winning it or or not winning it. It's a compilation of all the things and using the strengths of of your specific horse to, you know, make it your day and and then first versus second. Um, which is ultimately, you know, the that's what we all want to get to the point is where we're looking at the that that last 5% that we're not working on the, the 95% um, that is obviously necessary before you can work on the 5% left. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the, that jump off in particular. I think that does, there's a bit of a testament to the sport right now. Like I think it's easy to kind of complain about the problems the sport is, but that was really, really great sport. The, uh, the jump off in Geneva, right? Like I can't remember a jump off that was really that exciting in um in a while but um yeah like that is you know as you said that's that's kind of the level we're at right now where you know the guys in there you have two very different horses between julian's and and mclean's there with the zero right such a big moving big strider horses you don't really expect maybe a zero to be as good as in the indoors as you can you don't have as many opportunities to really flex like that big open stride but the way you did it was pretty masterful you know so i think um yeah, I think that that's that's a jump off. I've actually come back to a, a, a bunch of times because McLean's really good at that, at, at finding a way, not necessarily to, I wouldn't say Azur's got a disadvantage in that jump off, right? I'd say more like Julian's horse has, has got an advantage in the way he kind of works his horse through that whole jump off to be set up for that last line where he can leave the stride out on Julian's horse is, is um, it's pretty, pretty interesting to watch. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'm interested in, uh, in in understanding a little bit, uh, just bringing it back to the topic at hand is um, your process and where technology comes into play in that context. So when you're looking at your own horses and your own performance and how you can improve, um, you know, with each one, I know I know you guys work together on this, so maybe you both want to speak a little bit to the way that you've worked together and um, and found ways to 
to utilize technology in this way and in, in, in a way that I think makes top sport a little bit more accessible for others. So yeah, would you be willing to share a little bit about that? Yeah, there's there's a bunch of different levels, right? We've used that, you know, part of it's at the scouting horse level, right? We've we've had a lot of really great uh I think conversations and uh, been able to push forward in that direction. You know, a big part of it's in the actual training department. Um and then actually, you know, in a lot of ways the competition sort of maybe there's a lot of data that comes out of that, but it's um it's maybe um a lot easier to keep track of in in the actual competition itself but um yeah so maybe i'll i'll, I'll get started like it's um i guess there's that kind of feed le- feedback loop with between competition and actual training right like uh you kind of get an idea of what your horse needs to work on or, or get better or the areas you need to address while you're training at home and then you know you actually go and compete and then you have the rails at certain places or you lose the rideability in certain places and then you know after you've got like you know a month or three months of competition data you can feed that back into the training and say like okay we need to work this this and that or uh competition but um i think yeah maybe tim would be interesting for you to to jump in there as far as the um as far as the the training at home, developing the fitness, and then even just uh, what we've been looking for as far as scouting horses, we had a lot of really interesting um, conversations with some top uh, top coaches and athletes outside of show jumping who've uh, who provided a lot of really good points as far as uh, identifying talent and and working with them. Yeah, for sure. Like I think at the end of the day, sports can be viewed as relatively simple, like a you know, Sean needs to go into the ring and needs to jump around maybe at 400 meters a minute, um, you know, 16 jumping efforts obviously needs to lead everything up, but it's, if you start to peel back the layers, like it's incredibly complex, um, and like complex to the point where you can get so far down into the, you know, the, the minutia of it, that it's really no different almost than like the pressure's facing like a, a neurosurgeon every day or the uh, the pressure's facing like someone who's working for NASA. Um, like as soon as you can start to get down into like the actual cellular, cellular level of what we're trying to do with these horses, like every, every single day when you go into the barn and you make a decision to do, you know, X, Y, or Z with your horse in training, like that's going to directly impact the stressors placed on the body, which is going to impact, you know, so the metabolic load or the, uh, you know, the, the oxidative load, the meta- metabolic or mechanical load placed on the horse. And that's going to influence, all right, like what cells or what genes are going to actually be encoded, which uh, proteins are going to be created to to build the body up how how we want it created, right? So it's, it's incredibly complex in that way. And so like to Sean's point, I think that's what's so important about bringing, bringing in as many experts as we can, like we're constantly going out and reaching out to people who are leaders in their field, whether it's track and field or different researchers or uh, like on the management side or sort of anyone that we feel like we can learn from and bring that information in. Uh, and, I, and I think that, you know, just bringing it back to identifying talent, there's a, a video on my Instagram that I, I probably share every year because I enjoy watching it, but it's a high jumper named Stefan Holm. And you watch him jump and just leaving from the ground, he can pop up over probably like 180 meters, like 1.8 meters and just like 
consecutively hurdle hopping over that. Like it's nothing. And you look at someone like that and you wonder like, how is he able to do something that no one else can accomplish? And like anyone who's that good an athlete, they have an entire team around them looking at all of the different angles and all the different components. So I think that that's for sure one thing we're trying to do. Um, and as well, like coming back to something like scouting horses, the question becomes, especially, you know, it's an incredibly expensive sport, right? Like it's never going to be a cheap sport to do, but how do you frame it so that if you are on a tighter budget than the majority of other riders, like how do you find opportunities to still be competitive? And something like scouting horse, like that's an opportunity we feel. Um, a lot of focus is put on just results for young horses, but you know, a horse that's incredibly successful at meter 30 or meter 35 or meter 40, you know, there's nothing in there that really indicates it'll be successful at meter 60. Uh, the jumping mechanics are completely different. The speed's completely different. Um, so you're starting to peel back the layers and, okay, what are we actually looking for? And what in a tech, what you see in technique from a, a horse jumping really well at meter 30 that tells you it will jump well at meter 60 or it won't. Um, and so I think all of those things. And then just coming back to like what I did research on was a lot of uh, how does an individual like move through an environment? Like how do we perceive what's around us and act in it? And then, so like when we're watching video, that's a lot of what we're doing. Like why is a horse running around a course? Like usually it's a lack of strength or a lack of confidence that causes the horse to do that. So then you're going back to the training. You're trying to build stuff in that'll make the horse stronger, build up the horse's confidence. So it doesn't feel the need to run around. So it's, it's a constant back and forth. Uh, to me, that's the most fun thing about sport is trying to understand what your athlete is doing, especially with horses because they can't directly talk to us and tell us what they're thinking. So you're trying to interpret their actions and then you're going back to training, trying to build a training program to to address those, to build their confidence. And then you go back to the ring, you test it uh, and you sort of go go from there. Like, that's probably fair, right, Sean? Yeah, I, I would say that. Like maybe taking it back to looking at other sports as well, right? It's, it, it's kind of interesting because you look at some sports teams that are really successful and it's really easy to see why that team's successful. Maybe they had like a first overall pick and they got like a generational talent or something, right? And I think a lot of what you're looking for in, in scouting or in talent identification and then in development is ideally at the end product because you want that like that superstar in there to to win a major championship like there's just there's no other way around it you know um especially in in a sport where there's only two athletes in the ring at time with you know the rider and the horse right so i think everybody's trying to find that king edward that james connor like big star right and then i think you know when you look at maybe other sports right i think it's always interesting that dichotomy of um Okay, you take like, I like hockey, right? And you take maybe a team like the Detroit Red Wings in like the 90s and 2000s or something. And inexplicably, they got a whole bunch of superstars out of like the last and second last round of the drafts, like really, really great players, right? And the debate was always like, was it really good drafting there? Did they just find like the best guys? Or was it a really, really good developmental system because their development program was notorious for like kind of overcooking their prospects and giving them lots and lots of time in the, um, in the development leagues, right? Um, you know, I think 
at the end of the day, when you have one's really good, it tends to be both, right? But um, but I think that that comes back to it too, because realistically, like anybody can tell with show jumping, anybody can tell when a horse is really, really good and it's at that level, it's at that point, right? And then it's also there's a combination of luck or or money or or both that makes it possible for you to get that you know that equivalent of like that first overall generational talent, right? Um, but for the people who get them or the teams that have to kind of make their own luck that aren't getting those opportunities, right. Then you really do have to come back and like, what can we actually do? It's not like the only way to get the top horse in the sport is to spend $10 million on it. Right. Um, and I think there's plenty of examples going through of, of strategies to get around that kind of, uh, that kind of issue. Right. So I think that's, that's also the other part I think we, we spent a lot of time discussing is, um, is aside from actually identifying the horses and maybe what kind of horses we, we should target. Right. It's also creating a system there where we feel like we're going to also be able to get the best out of the horses that we do pick at the end of the day. Right. Interesting. So I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm, paraphrasing incorrectly and i love how i've turned this into me interviewing the two of you but um uh, i feel very powerful right now uh so it sounds like what you're you're kind of saying is it's not just about the tools it's about having the team in place to do this evaluation that allows you to understand what's happening with each individual horse at any given time and make adjustments accordingly by consulting the right professionals and knowing you know when the horses need those adjustments is that a nice is that a fair paraphrase? <laughs> yeah, I, I'd say so. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so that leads me to uh, sort of my next point is that part of this, you know, whether you have a superstar or you've built a superstar, I think the way that this sport has is developing, um, it, it's really hard for any one rider to really make it to the to the top of the sport with you know really just one horse and one horse cannot carry the weight of everything you know that an individual rider needs to accomplish their goals and even even without needing multiple horses going you know there's there's massive financial pressures just for keeping one horse you know at the medium medium levels of the sport going let alone um you know the the levels where where you're competing successfully so i'm curious what you think the role technology and science can play when it comes to looking for ways to perform at that high level when you have a little bit tighter budget? Yeah. So I get, yeah, there's, there's a lot in there. I'm trying to think of uh, where to start. Um, so, okay. So maybe just starting with, um, yeah, the, the one horse not being able to, to carry the load of maybe one rider's single ambition. Like, uh, yes, one horse isn't going to be able to make a rider rank number one in the world, right? But one horse can absolutely win you a major championship, or one horse can be ranked, you know, in, in the longitudes like combinations and jumping, right? So I think part of it's maybe just... Uh, just focusing on what's actually doable with your string of horses. Like if you have one really superstar horse, right. And then you don't have any other horses that can realistically jump an FEI or something like that consistently. Then I think it's the onus is on that rider there to put their ambitions aside and rather they want to be number one ranked in the world or something, it's just not going to happen. You're going to, you know, hurt your horse or, or yourself in that process. Right. Um, 
the other, like as far as the financial pressures, yeah, there's there's a whole bunch that's kind of going on there, right? Um, in that we've seen, obviously, you know, a decent raise, but not like insane inflation in the prize money that's gone in. It's been okay. Uh, we have, you know, $2.5 million Grand Prix. But the, the big issues right now is the the cost of actually getting the top horses and the cost of producing top horses. It's just incredibly expensive to do, right? Um, and then that's not even including like everything you need from your support personnel and the teams and organization you need on on the other side, right? Um, yeah, that's that's a tough one there to overcome because I don't think there's really a lot you can do other than accept that it's not really fair and that other teams are going to spend, you know, 30 times as much as you on the horses. And I think, you know, the onus on everybody else who doesn't have those resources is, yeah, accept it and move on. It's like, yeah, you're one of the, you know, 50 other major sports leagues in the world that has that same, you know, battle to, to take part in. Right. And um, you're just going to have to find ways to, um, to be more efficient with the money you're spending at the end of the day or the resources you're, you're, um, you're expending uh, on your team. Right. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's impossible. Right. I think actually come back and analyzing the different areas of your team um, and maybe where's not like the certain areas that aren't really translating success and dropping those areas. And then also investing more into the spots that are helping success. Right. Um, you know, I think there's also there is a there is a way you can <laughs> create also uh, maybe the team you want to or or the system you want through an aggregate as well, right? Um, I think even something we're doing right now, I don't think we have one particular horse in our string who's who's an absolute superstar, right? Like other horses, right? But um, what we've been trying to do a lot is not necessarily try and make one horse into that superstar or something, but also just try and use load management and try and use, you know, peaking kind of style of uh, training cycles to get, you know, maybe out of three horses, each of them peaking in a certain bit of time. Like, okay, maybe this horse isn't every single day of the week a five-star winner, but if you really get him ready and prepared and um, on his game, then you can reasonably put him into a five-star Grand Prix and say, okay, this is actually a good bet right now, right? Um, so I think that's actually been really helpful to, to us in our program, right? Um, where we've been able to take horses that may be a little bit like misfit uh, uh, in other programs, right? But then um, in the right place and the right time where they're not being asked to do too much or carry too much of a load, um, they can actually be a really, really important part of a bigger formula. Yeah. yeah, maybe maybe Tim, you can give us the the ninety second elevator pitch version of the the sort of science behind that uh, concept that that Sean was just speaking about. Yeah, like I think like anytime you you're in a tough situation and financial pressure for sure does that, you have to look for the opportunities. And I, I think that someone what it does do that is a good thing is it does force you to work within a small ri- window of error. Because for a lot of the well-funded programs, if a horse does get injured or if it does stop enjoying the job, you just go and buy another one versus like, we don't have that luxury. So we need to make sure the horses are always happy. Like that's 
number one, if you have a horse that enjoys its job, it's way easier to, you know, have it go through the training it needs to, and to go and compete and to have a, uh, and to do that uh, and not deal with all the stress issues that come along. I, I would say even not to not to interrupt you too, but that's probably the most important thing too. Sure. Like coming yeah. with the horses, it's like if if a horse doesn't like show jumping, it's just an absolute non-starter. Like <laughs> there's you could be just the most amazing rider with the most amazing program and everything, but if, like if a horse doesn't genuinely really enjoy doing this, like it's just not going to work, you know. Um, but yeah, go on. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, no, for sure, it's a, a good point. And then um, like the other thing is injuries. And I think like we do a, a good job of staying on top of that. Like Sean's got a great team of like staff in the barn who are really attentive to the horses, but uh, just trying to build programs that create horses that are robust, that are fit and, you know, knock on wood, quite durable at this stage. And like, even that, like if you think about time is money, if you have a horse that gets injured, it's maybe off for a month or it can't really train at the level it needs to for a month, then you lose that month of training it takes a month maybe to bring them back. And now all of your competitors are two months ahead of you with that same you know type of horse. So it's it's really about keeping them in work, keeping them healthy and, and their bodies uh, able to perform, but uh, to, to drive down that window. And then as you, you know, go higher and higher, it's what can you do in training to put them in the best positions to win without breaking the bank? And so that's something like Sean and I are playing around a little bit now and like partly influenced by a lot of these really top coaches from track and field is like, okay, how many days should the horses actually be working? Like, how do you build recovery in, um, you know, jumping, you can't deny it is incredibly, it's a huge pounding on the body of the forces the horses need to generate are massive. So how do you structure a training program around that? Um, especially in North America, like humans and horses, like the bias has always been focusing just on muscle development. But we know that, especially for for jumping, like the passive structures in the body, like the the tendons, the the fascia, uh, the aponeuroses, they produce a huge amount of force as well through that elastic energy that's stored and released uh, when they're stretched. So it's really building a program around that, and we think that's sort of the, the competitive advantage. We don't just need a, a rock star horse that's showing up at at Sean Stable, like you know by looking at a horse, trying to figure out, okay, what are its weaknesses and what can we do in training to, to shore those up? Then that's when you unlock the real potential. And um, like, those are all things that can be done without a huge investment in money. Yeah, that's really great. And I think we definitely have some really good um, videos in the sport horse uh, series library that get a little deeper into some of these sports science concepts that you guys are utilizing, you know, day in, day out. So we'll definitely uh, give you guys some links to those and some suggestions. Uh, there's a lot of science here, a lot of research and all this stuff, not with horses, but with other sports. And I think that's what's really kind of special and unique about what you guys are doing is you're taking that science and you're translating it and, and you know, yeah. making good it's use of it. One other thing on to that point, too, like uh, it, I think if also you look at um, you can probably learn a lot from other sports, not just from the other athletes that maybe been drafted and been really successful kind of out of nowhere. But you can probably also learn a lot from guys who or athletes who were drafted into major sports and were kind of pinned as really superstar in the making prospects and then didn't uh, didn't pan out. Right. And I think a lot of the time it's really interesting to realize 
the roles injuries played in one part or another through a lot of those um, a lot of those athletes in, in not reaching their full potential or um, or a system that was kind of in place that really um, through bad luck or bad management or combination of all of it um, uh, made it so that you know these athletes who probably could have been better didn't actually reach their full potential right but that's yeah that's another story. Yeah, no, but I mean, on the flip side, I think the notorious example of, of the, the players that are sort of um, not that impressive, like sort of mildly, you know, uh, just, just there. And then all of a sudden they become a long-term long time, you know, superstars like Tom Brady, you know, like that, that guy, Yeah, (laughs) that's, uh, you know, a career he was talk about managing an athlete. Like that guy, didn't put anything in his body that um, wasn't going to make him better for, I don't know, how many years did he play professional football? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's something, right? I think there's, that's also the exciting thing about sport too, right? There is that level of volatility, randomness um, that's never going to be completely away or you're never going to be able to completely take that out of the equations, right? But that's what makes it exciting and fun, you know, not really being able to, put it all into a spreadsheet and a hundred percent predict it. Right. But yeah. Um, yeah. No, but I, I do want to commend you guys. I think, you know, what you're doing is, is really interesting. It's exciting for someone like me who, you know, doesn't have all the budget in the world and my ambitions are, are not quite what yours are, Sean, but I like to compete. I like to win. I like to have a healthy, happy horse. And I think that most of our listeners can, um, can relate to that. And, um, for those that are interested in starting to integrate these technologies into their own training um, and management of care of their horses, it's just nice to see someone out there who's given it a go and and trying things and you know making changes as as you go because it's a learning process. But um, yeah, it's it's really nice to see. Yeah, no, thanks. I mean, it is. Yeah, I, I think there's there's importance of even just trying in the first place, right? Even if maybe every single goal isn't reached hundred percent the way you want it to be. Right. Uh, it's funny. I just, uh, I met funny side, the racehorse at Kentucky. I didn't realize he was uh, retired there last week. So I went up and, uh, and saw him, but I read that book about funny side when I was a kid and it just kind of made me realize too. It was like, he was a racehorse too, that for the first time, uh, you know, one of the first horses that was syndicated by, I think it was a group of 10 people that weren't like enormously wealthy, but they were like, hey, we could like put a little syndicate together and buy like, you know, $75,000 racehorse. And then yeah, we'll see how it was. And then got pretty lucky and they got an amazing racehorse. And he was just like this close from winning the Triple Crown. But I, you know, almost I remember Funny Side a lot better than a bunch of the horses that have won the Triple Crown just because of, uh, you know, what a great story that horse was right um so uh yeah i think there's value in just giving it a go anyways <laughs> well awesome i think that's a really nice place to leave it sorry tim i completely took over your your <laughs> no, no, out you for the day did a but, great job oh <laughs> thank you thank you too kind i think what's fun is that i'll ask both of you the last question um just keep the tables turned here a little bit we like to ask all of our guests this so tim's had a little more time to think about it than you have sean but uh we'll go to you first sean if if you could talk directly to a horse and they could understand you what would you want them to know 
Oh man, that's yeah. I was thinking about that, right? But I'm gonna be really sappy, and I'm just gonna say like, if if I could just talk to a horse and be like, just say thanks, you know, thanks for uh, thanks for jumping around. I appreciate it. And I'd want to know, you know, <laughs> how I could make his life better too, sure. and uh, and what I could do. But uh, they they do a lot. And it's really cool, and I don't. It's hard to tell exactly why some horses like people or why some horses like jumping around sticks so much, you know. But um, yeah, that's what I want to know. We want to have a little conversation with them. Yeah, All for right. me. Ah, uh, yeah. I guess this is our thirty-second episode, so I've listened to thirty-one <laughs> of these uh, <laughs> answers before, and I feel like they've, they've all the good ones have been taken. But um, <laughs> yeah, in terms of what I would want them to know, uh, I, I think it would just be that uh, you know, hopefully, if they have a, a caring rider just to know that when uh, their job's done, there's a, a boatload of carrots waiting for them back at the barn and stuff. And you just know that they'll be rewarded. I hope, but uh, yeah, I, I guess just to know that like, you know, hopefully they're in a good program at the end of the day. Uh, you know, these people are their partners. Uh, if they're not feeling it on a certain day, like make sure they let the partner know. And if the partner's insensitive to what the horse is trying to tell them, just, you know, get a little bit more aggressive with what they're trying to say. So, you know, if it takes throwing <laughs> someone into a jump to say like, Hey, I'm sore, then, you know, maybe it does come to that. But, um, yeah, in, in general, I think it, it is a partnership. Uh, they have a role to play in, you know, communicating that. And I, that's what I would wish, I guess, or want them to know. Awesome. Well, Sean, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, I really enjoyed that conversation, especially now as the solo host of this (laughs) podcast. Uh, Sorry that I kind of took it over there, Tim, but got to put you on the spot, which is always fun. Um, But it was really fun to learn about, you know, how you and Sean have been working together and, um, you know, offline, you guys and I, or you and I talk a bit about it and and how you've been using things like the Logo Move Pro um, and heart rate monitors and things like that. And um, using the sports science concepts that, um, you know, are so well studied and well understood in other sports and poorly, uh, I think, uh, distributed in equine sports. Um, and as I said earlier, like for all those concepts, uh, we have some really great videos in the sport horse series library. So we'll link to that in the show notes. Um, you guys should definitely check them out because things like learning, you know, what load means and, um, you know, all the other interesting things that Tim mentioned that help, um, you know, Sean to understand where her, his horses are at and where he wants them to be at certain, you know, certain times and how to get them to peak at the right time so that a horse that maybe, you know, isn't technically, you know, going to be able to jump a five star every other week. But if you set them up properly, can have a really nice performance, you know, once a month or, you know, once every two months, it makes that possible and and makes the sport a little bit more accessible as a result. So with that, uh, that's a wrap for today. As always, you can find the links to today's guest and the show notes at www.sporthorsepodcast.com. Please like and review the podcast wherever you are listening right now. Good reviews help other people to find the podcast, so we greatly appreciate it. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Sport Horse Series, so definitely go do that if you haven't already. Uh, You can have all 20-plus shows of the Horse Radio Network 
network with you wherever you go with our free app for iPhone and Android. Just go to the app store and search for Horse Radio Network. And here's to keeping your sport horse happy and healthy.